Well, this is the second part of this consideration of a fairly lengthy psalm, Psalm 69. And last week, if you're here, we were seeing that we were dwelling upon the sufferings of Christ, the man of sorrows, for his experiences are writ very large throughout this psalm. His death and passion, the treatment that he received, these things are spelled out here. And sometimes actually verses of this psalm are actually quoted in the New Testament. And even if they're not quoted, everywhere we can see the experiences that were our Lord's to have to feel. So in, just as an example tonight, just to, in the reading that we had, verse 19, you know my reproach, my shame and my dishonor. My adversaries are all before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I'm full of heaviness. I looked for someone to take pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. And then, directly taken up in the New Testament, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That last verse literally fulfilled at the cross, but all else are fulfilled. Well, not only as our Lord came to that time of sin-bearing, but really throughout his life, that he had adversaries before him. Their reproaches came upon him, cleansing of the temple in John 2. And there it is, that uh, the reproaches that people had, they fell upon him. And he experienced that, not just then, but that was a continuing experience, that as he went through the ministry that he was doing, truly he was carrying our infirmities, truly he was bearing our sicknesses. And in a way in which... He felt their sorrow, and he felt what was actually the the end point of these things, and that heaviness, that brokenness that was his to know, and none could share in it. He looked for those who might take pity, but there was none. His disciples weren't there, couldn't comprehend the full measure of who he was, really, and let alone what he had been called to do. And so the thought of him suffering, the thought of him being given over to the Gentiles and spitting and scourging him, being put to death and on the third day rising from the dead, that these matters were just beyond them, at least at that point, to understand. So he looked for comforters, but he found none, none that could share truly in what was his to have to experience. So our Lord Jesus Christ is very much in this psalm. But then we must say, too, that it is a psalm of David and that these things, he's not a stranger to them either, not in the fullest expression of them, not in all the detail of them. But as he's moved to write prophetically, as David was a prophet, of these things, this wasn't something totally alien from his own experience, living himself amongst adversaries and feeling them despising him for his his piety his zeal for the Lord, that he felt their approach heaped upon him shame and dishonor. And these things, therefore, were not completely foreign to him. But then, of course, us too, that these things are written for our instruction too. And what happened to our Savior, though many of the details of it and the depths of it and the reasons for much of it were his to have to bear as our sinless sin-bearer. But nevertheless, the path he had to walk is a path that we too have to walk. 
So the title tonight, In the Midst of Foes, he was, David was, so are we. We are in the midst of foes. And we can see something of that here. There are other themes too, as there are in the Psalms. You can never do full justice to the whole spread of thought, the whole range of expression that's there. Because truly it still is, though still using Old Testament language types and shadows, while the name of Jesus isn't there written large, nor the precise nature of his work. But it expresses for us a kind of whole way in which we as Christians can and should express our relationship, our walk with the Lord. And so there are themes in here which are maybe quite disparate, but which we'll pick up as we go along. The first heading is this, uh, implications of belonging to Christ, implications of belonging to Christ. Well, we can dwell much and often do on the privileges that we are a justified people, forgiven on account of anything that we are, but on his account, and that therefore that believing in him, in the glory and wonder of new birth, that we then are sealed with the Holy Spirit, that we are adopted, that we're therefore part of God's family, and inalienably so, that that remains fixed and firm, and that we're also on a journey of sanctification, that with the Holy Spirit indwelling us, we are on a journey away from our old selves, away from the world, away from the failures of our old nature, always capitulating to the devil's temptations. And we're breaking company increasingly, progressively, with all of that. And that too is part of the privilege, actually. The privilege of Christians, no longer to have to be unholy, no longer to have to live as they once did. We have the privilege now of living differently, having new power, new hopes, and new energies, which are given to us by the Lord. But while there are the privileges, there are also the sufferings. And we noted some of this last week, the hatred there, and we'll come back to that. It's there in verse 4, which our Lord knew, and which we also know. And uh, all the foes that, uh, for instance, are there in verse 19, the adversaries, which are all before you, they're all known to God. They're all clearly identified by him. The Lord is not unaware. But that's what they are. They're adversaries. They're not something else. They're not sort of trying to help us. They're trying, most of them, to destroy us. And they want to try to finish the church, stop preaching, stop Christian ethics, stop any kind of hint of religion. You have to travel a fair few miles in schools these days to find any hint of Christian religion worth the name. But they want to end what little there is and have it all excluded. No, we have adversaries. And we learn our calling and our place, what we are to expect there in the word of God. We read in Matthew chapter 10, didn't we, in the commission that was given there to the 12 as they went out. But they were warned what was to happen. And this wasn't the only warning that our Lord issued. He issued other warnings, similar warnings, towards the end of his time with them there in Jerusalem. But he warns them what they are to expect And it's not just what they are to expect, it's what we are to expect as well. And we can't excuse ourselves from it because our Lord told us this is what it would be like. So Matthew 10, just read uh, somewhat of what we read earlier, verse 16. Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. 
But beware of men. It is, isn't it? Beware of men. For they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how, what you should speak. For it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brothers to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you'll be hated by all men for my name's sake, that he who endures to the end will be saved. Well, kind of words like that, you might think we very quickly clear the room, and that we'd be saying, well, no, thank you. Uh, I really don't want that happening. Uh, what's this strife in, in families and men there who are going to deliver us up to authorities and whatever the method and mode of punishment there, scourgings, well, that perhaps belongs to some cultures still today, but these these kinds of punitive actions, well, no, thank you. I, I want to absent myself from that, please. Well, authentic Christianity, I'm afraid, doesn't permit for that. And if we're followers of the cross, if we're followers of our Lord, the crucified one, then he has told us this this is what will follow on. And uh, just a little later in that passage, doesn't he, says there, a disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. We can't expect if the master had that, that we as servants will somehow be exempt. No, on the contrary. It's enough for a disciple, and here's the positive, that he'd be like his teacher and a servant like his master. If they've called the master of the house bells above, how much more will they call those of his household? Well, that's it. You, you can find it harder work to try and pick holes in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. It's not too hard to pick holes in us, in our sort of fallible, frail state that we are in. So they'll have all kinds of things to call us. So we have that there. We looked last week, actually, and read last week in John chapter 15. And uh, just to take a few verses from there, from verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word in similar territory, this, isn't it? That I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. They kept my word, they will keep yours also. So there we have it uh, spelt out to us again. And in the New Testament, I won't refer to those references now, but there are plenty of them. In Acts chapter 14, verses 21 to 22, the apostle there warns the churches that are just recently established that there's many trials and tribulations that we enter the kingdom of heaven. In Romans chapter 8, verses 16 to 17, that uh, tell us there of our sharing in the sufferings of Christ. We're going to share in fellowship with him, we're heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. But that means we also share in his sufferings. And in Colossians chapter 1, verse 24, where Paul talks about filling up in the flesh those afflictions of Christ. So that's part and parcel. And we're not exempt from that. The implications of belonging to Christ, I'm afraid, mean that we will, if we're in any way representing him truly, that we will be facing a degree of, well, it's hatred, isn't it? The Lord calls it hatred. And it's there in Psalm 69, verse 4, 
It is hatred. We then can feel what we were placing there very much within the experience of our Lord, us therefore to a lesser extent, but the, the sense of being overwhelmed and the sense at times of having no footing and as though why the whole world is against us, the whole community is ranged against us and is trying to heap upon us shame and reproaching us for what we believe and the things that we we do. And uh, for us, there is often there a disapproval. So we find it in verse 9 of Psalm 69, an offence taken at who we are, what we believe. So hate, well, we that's a word that's in parlance at the moment, isn't it? Just this idea of hate, hate speech. Uh, I should have given you a trigger warning before this sermon. You know, this will be construed by many as hate speech, I'm sure. And that that's the fact, because the whole notion of, of hate, of people being phobic, that they've got some kind of animus within, something kind of driving them there into feeling, expressing the things that they do. And we we are given all kinds of descriptions and labels that are very pejorative, very, very insulting, and which are often expressed very, very strongly. And we'd have to say that it seems to be hatred. But the hate speech comes from those, I would offer the thought primarily, who themselves are accusing us of hate speech, that the anger and the, the sharpness, the bitterness, the animation of so many folk when they express themselves in this is really quite uh, quite shocking. We can be quite taken aback. Um, our Lord in John chapter 10 spoke to the people that uh, he was speaking to there in Solomon's porch. And they were ready to take up stones, weren't they, to throw at him. And uh, he puts the question to them in John 10 verse 32. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you for my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? Puts it back on their conscience there. Why are you picking up stones? You are surrounded by the performance of good works. You have my own example, how I live out what I do. So for which of those things, I politely ask, are you picking up those stones now to throw at me? What is this hatred? Why do you hate me without a cause? Which is what we saw quoted in the New Testament in our Lord's experience from, again, from this psalm. But it is that we can be quite taken aback at times by the, the vehemence, the, the, the vitriol that comes through when people speak to us and tell us who they think we are and what they think about us. I can think of examples where those who seem quite friendly, but then suddenly they realize you're a Christian, it all changes. And uh, they're, they're accusing you of this and that and uh, regarding you as well, the worst of the worst there quite personal, quite unfocused, quite irrational. Just there's so much of all this froth and sound and fury that's coming out of the US at the moment after the ruling on Roe v. Wade. You, you're amazed what they think the world's going to end or their whole life is going to fall apart. Well, extraordinary statements that they're making is a far more modest ruling than that. And yet to hear their rhetoric and the, the kind of hyperbole and the exaggeration in it uh, you wonder quite what they're about there. So people, who well, I'm sad to, sure if you sat with them and had a, a latte or cappuccino with them, they would come over quite reasonable. 
in just ordinary conversation. Uh, but talk to them about Christianity. You might see something quite different. All people affect great moral outrage at all that the Christian church has been, why, well, hundreds and hundreds, why, thousands of years ago in some cases, as though we are the kind of descendants of the Crusaders, as though we're the people that should now all kind of stand up and apologize for our forebears and for what they have done. Well, I'm sure we wouldn't want to be anywhere near what our forebears did when they went on these very misguided in religious terms crusades, whatever other rationale they might have had. Uh, they couldn't really justify it there from uh, the word of God. Yet we end up being the people who have to pay for those crimes. And always note that Islam is accepted for all of the invasions that it's done and enslavements it's done. It's always the Christian church that has to pay the price for whatever people call themselves Christians in the past got up to. And we've seen, and again, we refer a little bit to America, but you could refer it over here too, of, again, the, the, the anger, the hatred uh, against the very Supreme Court judges. Brett Kavanaugh there, if you follow the story of his appointment a few years back, why, it was a absolutely trawling over the poor man and all kinds of accusations were being made, which actually couldn't be grounded. And when there were opportunities for other witnesses to say, yeah, I saw him do it, uh, couldn't be found. In fact, if anything, denied uh, the accusation that was being made against him. And uh, to see now the pictures of the Supreme Court judges who ruled that uh, Roe v. Wade must be struck down, uh, pictures of them being burned and all kinds of strong language and invective used against them. It's real hatred. And that is not something to be marveled at. And in fact, somewhere within it, we offer this thought, don't we, with our Christian perspective, the conviction of sin, the sense actually of guilt, guilt at abortion, guilt at ending the life of another human being. But it's not part of a woman's body, it's actually a living being inside a woman's body with his, her own identity, own personality in the making. And so this isn't just a sort of an appendage. Uh, and well, I heard somebody say that an abortion should be just like having a bunion taken off. Uh, this effort to sort of take it all just into the everyday and make it nice, no big deal. Well, that's what they're likely to believe, but I don't think they actually believe their own rhetoric. I think the guilt that a lot of these people feel, and they're knowing that they're pushing against something which is actually quite strong within them, that this is a life that they're dealing with so cruelly and heartlessly in abortion, lives on in them. But instead of them coming to mature reflection on it, they just become more angry in it. Just sort of adds more heat, as it were, to their, their arguments and the way in which they express themselves. So, friends, there, there is hate. And we are amongst those serpents. We, we are out and amongst wolves in that way. And we are bid, don't we, there to be rather wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But we are amongst wolves. And reproaches, efforts to make us feel guilty, make us feel guilty for what we believe, that it's uh, uncaring and unloving, that we, we haven't got people's interests at all at heart, and, and that's, that's, that's who we are. Well, if you know the term gaslighting, the effort to make us feel guilty about things that maybe other people should feel guilty about, I think there's a lot of that takes place. And 
these efforts there. And I'm sure the people who've heaped that reproach upon us uh, are genuine in their feeling of that reproach. I don't doubt it, I'm sure. But the validity of it and the, the efforts made within it to heap guilt upon us uh, could be thought to be a little bit of an effort to deflect attention away from themselves and absolve themselves of doing serious thought about the lifestyles that they have chosen. So we are to hear slander, read untruths, read such things in print in books about myself on occasion, and publishers and broadcasters lap this stuff up because they're deeply sympathetic to it. And we can feel these are hard times and the implications of belonging to Christ bring us into these times of reproach and at the receiving end of people's hatred. Well, certainly we shouldn't reply in kind. Certainly we should not reply in kind. The temptation will often be there to do precisely that, but it would be totally counterproductive and would be a poor witness. So not that. And not uh, offer our own rather blanket diagnoses there to their faces or whatever there. Well, he tries to be as guarded as possible here in the pulpit and what's said, but I think we've seen enough evidence out there to be able to offer some kind of diagnosis with an open Bible of some of these people. But we differentiate, and there are people with different situations and different experiences. And so we try to understand people. We even try to understand people in their sin, try to understand how they ended up here, how they ended up thinking what they're thinking, doing what they're doing, not being there just judgmental over them, because we've all of us been in some measure there where they are. We none of us started in the right place, we had to be drawn to the right place and are still being drawn to the right place by the Lord in his mercy. And as he had mercy upon us, otherwise we would be there as well. We would be the people expressing hatreds and we'd be the people looking for every reason and any reason not to believe in the gospel. And so we try to understand people and try to speak with people. We may not get very far on Twitter and social media, but if we meet people individually, and have an opportunity to be able to speak in a, in a kinder way, in that way, than can be done in the more anonymous, and there's no great thing that, anonymous sphere of Twitter or something like that. But these are the implications of belonging to Christ, and this is what we too will have to know. We're in the midst of foes. So my second heading, quite stark on this, destruction awaits them. Destruction awaits them. And we just can't gloss over this. It's, it's there in scripture that in all of the good things, and we've thought about some of the privileges that we have, but there is, there is that dark side. There is the implication of disobedience against God, against his laws. He doesn't just sit there and take it. And though we may be required and our Lord was required on earth to bear with it and to suffer in the midst of it, do not answer back in it. But there will be a day in which God most certainly will bring a definitive and final answer and bring final closure upon all of the things that they have been doing. And it is a long game in that way that we play, that we're not looking for vindication tomorrow, we're not looking for justice in a week's time. We may have to wait for heaven, or we may have to wait for the judgment throne. We know this, that all the books and all the shouting and the screaming is actually just going to be evidence on the day of judgment. It's just going to be the evidence that is at least part of the evidence that will be available 
and which will be used against them on that day. They'll have to answer for every word that they have said, as we will have to do. They'll have to answer for every bit of invective, every shout, every scream, every way in which uh, they spoke very violently about what they wanted to do to some of these judges in America, for instance. And so verses 22 to 28, and the, well, the strength there, isn't it, of, of imprecation. <laughs> this is where you are calling for destruction upon these enemies. And what's there, this psalmist is looking to be accomplished. Well, that's not for us to pray. We are to pray for our enemies. We are to look, actually, that uh, for them, their, their eyes may yet be enlightened, that they may fear God, that they may learn to make their peace with him. But if they don't, that's what is going to end the life. This, this is what's going to happen. This is justice speaking. Justice is God's and God's to administer. It will be administered very perfectly and very very nuanced way, but it will be very clear, very direct, very emphatic. And it's not going to be comfortable for those who have opposed him. And scripture doesn't try to hide that. And we shouldn't try and hide it either. We can speak about the wonderful things that there are, but there are warnings too. If we won't close with God in the peace he offers in Christ, then there's an end. And the end is very, very uncomfortable. And so this actually makes us urgent in our prayers and our reasonings with people that this is what's going to happen, that their table, which looked so spread with good things that they appeared to have everything working for them, that uh, managed to get all those judges fired or they managed to change the constitution, putting it there in American terms, but whatever, that they, they managed to barge through in Northern Ireland and get everything they wanted there. Well, it may have looked like a full table, but all of it becomes a snare. It's all just evidence in the end that will be used in judgment. And all the things that they shouted for and affirmed in the end are just that. That's just further proof, evidence that they were fit actually for judgment. And their eyes that they thought were so bright and they, with clarity, could diagnose all my phobias and all of yours. But actually, no, they, they didn't. And they'll, they'll be darkened. They won't see. They won't have clarity. And their loins will shake continually. Basically, we're describing hell here. This is what it's going to be about. And God's indignation is upon them. And it'll take hold of them. Not comfortable, that. Because now they'll have a degree of clarity. The moral code is there. And I can imagine they might actually now believe in it. But it's no help anymore. And it's no help to them. It's just a reminder to them of how they misspent their time on earth and were found on the wrong side of history, to use the modern term. And it will be that uh, the, the grief of those that you have wounded and the persecutions that they have done, the shame of that, will come upon them. <laughs> that they will remember all of the words they spoke. And you can find that, can't you, there, that Enoch was, was saying that, all the ungodly things the ungodly have said in the ungodly way that they have said it. And it comes back to haunt them there. And they live with that, and that is not something there to to welcome. And they are blotted out to the book of the living, and they're not written in the book of the righteous. Iniquity is added to their iniquity. They are experiencing there just a measure of the outcome 
of justice visited upon them. So we pray for clemency and we pray for mercy. We pray that God will enlighten their eyes. But if they won't listen, then that's the destination. Destruction awaits them and the evidence will be there and will be used against them. They travel forward to hell itself and there is the snare. Everything they thought was good turns out to have been wrong. Everything they thought was uh, evidence of their superior morality turns out to be its opposite. And everything that they had on their full table and all of the things and all that uh, animated them, and that they invested time in, which they thought was so worthwhile, uh, becomes in the end that which uh, brings the trap down upon them. They, they are, they're accused and by their own words, they will be condemned. So we can see destruction awaits them. And in fact, uh, Judas Iscariot is, is mentioned within the the context of this uh, in verse 25 he's quoted in acts 1 verse 20 when peter is is saying that they need to appoint another one amongst their number since judas left them and went to his appointed place and it is there that uh, his dwelling place uh, is, is desolate and there is no one living uh, in their tents that he's got nothing to follow him his ministry is finished it's gone his place amongst the apostles lost and so somebody else must take that place and fulfill, as it were, a lineage, a genealogy of usefulness that is not his. He's gone. And so we can see that so this, this is the, the destination. This is the a horrible end to it. There is no fruitfulness in hell. There is no nothing you build up there. It's gone. It's desolate. And indeed, everything you build up here on the earth will just be struck down as as not fit for purpose and not satisfying God in his justice. But we should not be unmoved by this, that though that's justice speaking there, you know, it's there in the Psalms, and actually we affirm it, we attest it. If we didn't, we'd be saying that God doesn't care about his own law. We'd be saying that God isn't interested in justice. He is intensely, and this just shows us how intensely. But it is for us to pray for such people, still to try to evangelize them, it's hard work, friends, isn't it, just to evangelize against such opposition and, and hatred. And yet we still seek as best we can to reach such people. Feel sorrow for their choices, not hate them in return, and not approve them in their actions or choices, but treat them as fellow sinners, that they were where we were once, that they were in the same problem. And thinking themselves, why well, superior to this Christianity and the need to obey what's here in this book. But we then saw better. They don't yet. And we feel sadness for them. And that sadness should come and invest something into our prayers. Well, my final heading is this, our duty of praise. This is more what we can and should be saying. That while those imprecations there are really for... God's determination, that's his justice to be carried out for us in our neediness, as we can see in verse 29, but in a sense I'm going to be picking up on that in a few weeks' time, in our considerations in Psalm 70, but we will praise the name of God, verse 30, with a song, and will magnify him with thanksgiving. And what a good effect this will have, the humble, verse 32, will see this and be glad and you who seek God, your hearts shall live. You will really 
be touched and enlivened by this. And then at the end, there is a call even upon heaven and earth to praise in the seas and everything that moves in them. Really inanimate things uh, really owe their all to him and should find a voice to praise him for he's worthy of it. And we must see in this too, the ministry and life of our Lord Jesus Christ. That the man of sorrows was also the man of praise. That he who went to synagogue, as was his custom, was accustomed to these praises, to singing them, to meaning them, to having them there readily upon his lips. And that's what we're to be as well in the midst of foes, dealing with some very heavy themes, some very solemn themes, but in the midst of them, praising God. In the midst of foes, praising God. And this is what our Lord did. Did it there with a pure intention and with pure love to God. Well, if we can't match that quite, we want to get nearer and nearer to it and to praise him with an upright heart. Not that we're looking on praise as therapy. A little kind of way to cheer ourselves up. We haven't got any music tonight to kind of accompany us in that way, but... In a sense, it makes his point that we, we're looking beyond what the music might or might not do. Uh, we're looking for what the truth of what we sing means and the music enhances it and gives it there perhaps some further color and depth to it. A good tune does that. And truth sung does have therefore distinctive properties that uh, we've not been able to avail ourselves this evening. It does gladden the people of God when it's truly meant, when it's sincerely offered, when the words that are expressed are good and solid and scriptural words. When I was in North Wales the other week, uh, they were saying that, I can't quite the f- quote the figure, I can't quite remember it, but you, you had basically 100 miles, I think it was 120 miles actually, but anyway, let's say 100 miles, let's try not to exaggerate, 100 miles of hymn singing, that the effect of the, revivals was that you just were never out of earshot of a chapel where there was hymn singing and just as you kind of were walking along you're just losing the sound of that congregation of people praising ah you were now hearing another congregation praising and you could go well what was it there a hundred miles and that would be your experience you're never out of earshot of praising worshiping people well that's that duty of praise and I put it in that way, our duty of praise, because it doesn't mean we praise with everything sorted and answered, that we praise the name of God and we magnify him with thanksgiving. It doesn't mean that everything has been sorted out and every question you have, I have, has now been sufficiently dealt with that we can, we feel with good conscience, praise God. No, we praise him without having all the answers. We praise him without seeing all the justice that we might wish to see in the world. We praise him while there are foes all around us. And according to his good pleasure, he's not seen fit to send revival, and bring conversions upon them, as was the experience there in North Wales. And we find ourselves, don't we, at times a painfully small company. And yet we still praise him. We praise him in the midst of foes. And we do it with real faith that we don't believe that because we have not seen, as it were, the discomfiture of those who oppose Christ. 
really coming to the fore. They, they seem to have it all going pretty much in their favour. They've got the media on their side. A lot of it's working pretty nicely, thank you very much. We don't see them overly interrupted and overly concerned. Though, as I say, we read in their rage that in their hearts, things aren't good at all. But while we are still receiving the brunt of their hatred and prejudice and all the other things that they accuse us of, while we are at the receiving end of that, we don't therefore deny God the praise and the worship that's due his name. Or think that Thanksgiving is off the record because there's so many things here that are just not going right. No, rather, we continue as an act of faith, actually. Faith in the future. Yet, yes, God will judge all the wicked and banish all these things from the earth. But faith also that God is still the God of the present and that he can still act on behalf of his people now. Psalmist reflects this pleases God. There in verse one, this this faith, this recognition of our poor and sorrowful state. But nevertheless, that we come, therefore, recognize, that even if that's our state and we're in the midst of foes, that we will praise the name of God with a song and will magnify him with thanksgiving. Not an act of whistling in the wind or in the dark or something like that, not some kind of trying to cheer ourselves up when we're staring defeat in the face, but reminding ourselves that actually... Despite all outward appearances, we're actually on victory's side. And that judgment doesn't sleep, and one day will come. And Christ will come with shout of acclamation and take us home. What joy will fill our hearts. God hears our praises. He hears the poor, verse 33, does not despise his prisoners. He hears small churches, small congregations. He hears them. He hears your prayers at home. He hears your worship, your praises of him that you offer to him in your own home and in the privacy of it. And so we're in the midst of foes, but we have a most noble duty of praise, continuing praise. And however, whatever people out there are doing, whatever they're saying, however they are making themselves well, truly more obnoxious in the sight of God and more injurious to our peace and our hopes here Nevertheless, we turn our thoughts ever to God, but he hasn't changed and he will surely bring to pass his purposes in his own time. And we're actually stating this confidently. This is faith, faith in his promise, faith in his character, faith in everything that we've learned of him through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's there, as so often in the Psalms, brings together the most complex, the most remarkable life as a Christian, its various aspects, and how actually what seems quite contrary molds together to make us whole people, whole Christian people, living a full Christian life. And even though at the moment we're the church militant upon earth, living amongst foes, one day those praises will indeed be in heaven And uh, that's where our songs of praise will continue in a higher strain. Well, we pray, Lord Jesus, come. But we have our final hymn here now to read for our comfort and strengthening. It's number 587. 587. Now I have found the ground wherein. 587. 